Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tas Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is Dr. Dan Hill. He's the president at Sensory Logic. So, Dan, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, absolutely. Looking forward to it. So, Dan, when I look at your uh, profile, your know, experience is so extensive. And one thing stands up. It says that you've worked with half of the world's top 100 customer-facing companies. What do people usually come to you for? They've been lied to in life. And uh, it means that their forecast for what's going to sell, what's going to get them ROI falls through because people just give lip service in the usual focus groups or online surveys and so forth. And they want to make traction. And uh, they realize that actions do speak louder than words. And I've been fascinated by using facial coding to capture people's movement on the face, those subtle facial gestures that indicate for us, are they actually interested? And are they on board or do they have reservations that they won't tell you about? Sure. Do people worry about you at dinner parties and, and what their facial expressions are? Well, yes. Uh, and no one plays poker with me. I remember a, a couple of business meetings where about two minutes and they say, just a minute, I'm going to resume the conversation. But first, I'm going to pivot my chair away from you <laughs> just so that it's a more equal meeting. So, yes, it does come up. So you talked about, you know, companies being lied to or people being lied to there. How do you help close the gap in terms of understanding true feedback and what's going on there? Sure. Leonardo da Vinci, being the great artist that he was, also was so imaginative that he was the leading first expert on facial expressions. But they've now been codified by a professor now retired from the University of California, San Francisco named Paul Ekman. And he went through and he systematically figured out 23 expressions that correspond to seven emotions, happiness and surprise, and then five negative ones, anger and fear and sadness and disgust and contempt. Because so often in life, we, we hear the bad news more loudly, mm-hmm. and it's the bad news you have to overcome. So uh, when we apply the system, or we can do it for training or other purposes, it's a chance to see which emotions are happening and at what volume. In regards to which pieces of advertising, which claims for your new product, what slides in your sales pitch are working and not working, what are the steps of product usage that you know sync up for people and the other ones that cause confusion. So th- there's all sorts of applications. Mm. So are these techniques used together? Like for instance, a traditional survey and then validating through facial expressions, or are they kind of done independently? Whereas the facial features itself could tell tell you enough about what's going on there. They can tell you a lot, but I'm not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So there's no reason not to get the ratings and the verbal input. It's just that sometimes the verbal input, as we all know, can be a bit cloudy. People don't want to tell you no but that's how they actually feel. My father was in charge of 3M printed post-it notes and he used to take you know trips all around the world. And he used to say to me, well, Japan was particularly difficult because there were 60 versions of yes and I knew 40 of them really meant no. And uh, if only I'd had your skill set, Dan, I could have been a lot more effective in those meetings. But it's, it's not just Japan, it's, it's every place. So no, we'll, we'll take any input. And in fact, I've also used the tool in conjunction with eye tracking. 
because eye tracking and facial coding allow me to know down to the split second, you know, what they're looking at and how they feel about what they're taking in. So you can see the obvious applications to advertising, but it can go other places too. I've even used the two tools in a book on people's responses to famous art. What are some simple things that, you know, executives could take into meetings and stuff like that, that would help them stay more connected to what was happening in the conversation? Sure. Well, here's a really simple one. There is a vast gap between a smile and a smirk. They both show similarly. They're on the corner of the mouth. In both cases, the corner of the mouth lifts up. But in a smirk, there's a tension because really contempt, which is what a smirk signifies, is a combination in many ways of happiness and anger, strangely enough. Because we are in some ways oddly delighted that someone has lied to us because we, we feel like we're above them. They're beneath us. On the other hand, Having been lied to is not a pleasant experience, and so there is some indignation that comes with it. The importance for an executive is that we often say that trust is the emotion of business. Well, contempt is its exact opposite. It means I don't trust you, I don't respect you, I'm not on board. It is the number one indicator that a marriage will fail. And if it's not good for a relationship, it's not good for the customer brand relationship, or if you're a leader in a meeting, trying to bring along your, your subordinates, if you're in negotiations with another party. I mean, this is really potentially fatal. It means that they just don't believe you. And that makes all communication and all attempts at collaboration difficult. So a happiness and a smirk, a smile and a smirk, seemingly similar. The difference between them, I would say, is in a single word, profitability. Yeah. So let's say you you recognize a smirk and you're like, well, there's something more there. What would be like the action plan from there on how you should dive into that without, you know, to, to get sort of an honest uh, response or, or more, uh, get more out of that uh, feedback? That's an excellent question. And I'm not going to say that it's easy because people aren't going to necessarily divulge to you, you know, what's the objection? So you have to try to ferret it out. Most people won't tell you it directly, but if you can see the moment that it happened, then I would suggest, first of all, you replay in your mind what might have been the trigger, mm -hmm. what might have just been said, what happened in the meeting, was there some step? And that's the place to first go to. I would also say you want to get kind of a baseline. Is this somebody who kind of smirks a fair amount? Mm -hmm. They are kind of just naturally a bit haughty, a bit condescending, a bit untrustworthy. Uh, so if that's true, it may not just be you. It may not just be that single comment that was made. That's their disposition. That's how they tend to see the world. But that's still really valuable information because that means you're going to have to work harder to find a way to get through to that person. And it may mean that let's hope they got a, a, a colleague in the meeting that maybe a subordinate, maybe a co-equal. Maybe that person has a different disposition. They're a bit more open-minded and open-hearted, as it were. Maybe if they trust that subordinate, then your way in is going to be with the subordinate instead. And in that case, I would say, what comments do you see make that person light up? Our emotions turn on when something matters to us. It's relevant. We're excited about it. And then if they can combine that with a happy smile, that means that they're kind of open and embracing and so maybe your avenue is through another conduit instead of this, you know, endlessly smirking individual. <laughs> I mean, when you were talking about things that make people happy, uh, does 
better open conversations happen if you i don't know it sound like prime the conversation or starting a point where you know they they may have a happier motion do you get better feedback there or do you sort of affect the result in some way well i i think you've got good instincts there because you want emotional momentum you know, no meeting goes well if it bumps along from no to no to no, whether it's said explicitly or implicitly. So, yeah, I'm always looking for what's the connection. Maybe it's something in their office. Maybe it's, you know, where they grew up, where the company's located. I'm looking for some point of connection. It's well established that when there's an element of familiarity, we are more likely to bond with the other party. Even in hilarious ways, there are studies that show that, say, for instance, you go on a date and you're from Peoria and that person's from Portland. Just the fact that your two cities start with the letter P causes people to feel there's more affinity between you. I mean, it's absurd. And yet we are not rational beings and we do look for points of comfort. And anything that creates familiarity offers comfort potentially and a way in. So whatever the case may be, take it. Yeah, no, perfect. Now, I guess another thing that comes to mind, in what situations are facial expressions or these signs uh, unreliable? Are there outside factors that sort of make these things less reliable? Maybe they're nervous about something else or or something. I mean, does a disconnect happen depending on the situation? Oh, sure. You always have to put things into to context. And yes, they may be just nervous about the meeting or they've got to make an opening statement. And they're just not someone who's, you know, extroverted and inclined to enjoy that experience. So you, you have to make your allowances. You're really looking for the patterns. You're, you're looking for the trigger moments, certainly the revealing, you know, uh, seminal moments. But you also have to look at the patterns over time and see what the person kind of moves to, perhaps. Uh, does the conversation get warmer? But contempt, I think, is the exception because it goes to fundamentally that I don't trust you. It's so important that I think you just have to really seize on that detail and, and stay with it. But yes, as to your question that to uh, unreliability, I would say body language is actually less reliable. Mm. because the face is the only place in the body where the muscles attach right to the skin. So it's quick, real-time data. The problem with, you know, hand gestures and how they sit and leaning back and forth, I'm not saying that that's not potentially valuable information, but watch any U.S. presidential debate and you will see how they've been coached to offer certain gestures. And you can manipulate and throw out a gesture much more easily than you can what's going on on your face. And the other problem there is that gestures can mean different things in different cultures. I had lived in Italy as a boy. Italians are famous for body language, but there are certain expressions that might be fine in Belgium that could get you killed in Sicily. You know, they're just different, different customs, different places. Facial expressions are much more universal in nature. And, you know, that, that's the, the genius of them. Yeah. Maybe there's no perfect way to answer this, but... To what level do you think you can sort of anticipate people's temperament or personality, you know, by, by seeing them on a video and, and looking at their profile and stuff like that? How, how close on average do you think you can get? Or do you really need that sort of back to uh, face-to-face or, or uh, interactivity um, to figure that out a bit better? Uh, no, that, that's a good question and has a good premise to it. I think you can do your homework. You know, luck favors the prepared. So uh, these days, everything is on 
baseline and there should be photographs. It could be video. People tend to have a baseline. George Orwell, the famous British writer, once said, by the age of 50, a man has the face he deserves. You know, we have muscle memory. Certain expressions just tend to be our default or things we go to repeatedly. And I think it does give you a real good opportunity coming into a meeting to anticipate what that person might be like. Now, it could be a life event that occurred since then, positive or negative. It could be that particular meeting and context. But sure, you want to take every opportunity you can. And quite honestly, Zoom calls are a great opportunity because you're not distracted by a lot of other things. You've got the face right there in front of you. Uh, you can often go back to the video files later on if you want to revisit key moments in the conversations. You know, as long as people aren't wearing a COVID-19 mask, and they probably won't if it's from their home office during a Zoom call, then then it's just a it's a great opportunity to capture information and and know who you're you're dealing with because everything in business we can say B to P and B to C, but it's really business to people. You yeah. know, you have colleagues, you have customers, you have suppliers. They are human beings. They have motivations, and you just have to work out who it is you're you're dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, one thing just popped into my head. Have you utilized or people ask you to utilize your methods in negotiation? I have a bit. And actually, I have something pending with a firm that works on mergers and acquisitions. And so in trying to close the deals and read if the other party is going to have a reservation. Yes. So it, it's kind of you know on tap for me to start to use that in conjunction with them. It's a great application. You know, anytime you've got negotiations, whether it's merger and acquisition or something else, I mean, you've got real table stakes there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, has a person really put out their position? Probably not fully. I mean, I've used this, for instance, in legal fields for jury trials. So it's great to both read the prospective jurors, the jurors' reactions during the testimony, the person in the witness stand. I think it's a pretty good parallel to that negotiations application. Yeah, no, that's interesting. The thought I had was around, I know that some of these movies talk about facial expressions or predicting juries and stuff. How true are those movies? Like, How in-depth have you gone there? The jury stuff is not as clean and easy as one would like. Uh, it's a lot easier when you got a person on the witness stand or really videotaped deposition. Here in St. Paul, Minnesota, where I live, the largest settlement involving a Catholic diocese regarding, unfortunately, predatory sexual behavior uh, was settled you know, in the state. I went to the lead attorney and he said, well, I've got one witness who's seemingly inscrutable. Really interesting. It was the brother of Obama's chief of staff. And he was a smart guy. He was very indirect in his answers. But I went through the videotape and I said, boy, here's where he's smirking. Here's where he's nervous. Here's where his words and what he's feeling don't seem to correspond very well. Those are the places that when you call him to the stand or you request a second deposition, that's where I would really pursue things. So that's great because what happens in a lot of jury selections is it's chaos. You've got a lot of people in the room. They're trying to churn through all the prospective jurors. And they can be a, quite a distance from you, as I've experienced. And you want to be probably within, ideally, three to five, six feet, not halfway across the courtroom room. You want to be able to see the face relatively straightforwardly. 
So what I found was that the best use in jury selection is the ones that you're really on the fence with. You can ask them to come up to the judge's front you know, desk with the opposing counsel and ask a few follow-on questions. And I would trail along and stand behind the lawyer asking the questions. And then I'd tell them, yes or no, take that juror, don't take that juror, because now I had the close-ups that I was seeking. Yeah. Hey, uh, I saw one photo analysis on, I think, one of your websites where you were talking about court athletes and sure. you had video. And I think I, I saw one comment in there. It was something along the lines of, hey, you want to be positive, but you don't want to be too positive or too happy. And that was interesting because I was referring to sort of the disconnect of, you know, you have to be a little bit dissatisfied to, to perform or be a leader or something around those lines. Can you speak to leadership in facial expressions or, you know, the, the emotion side of things? Yeah, no, I think, you know, athletes get the, the big bucks because they got to be on the stage and perform in the moment. It's quite similar to leadership. And uh, your point's well taken. What I've found is uh, there are upsides and downsides to happiness. The upside is that you tend to be more expansive, more creative. You take in input more readily. Openness to experience, for instance, is something that Thomas Jefferson, our great president, you know, had in spades. The downside to happiness, however, is that you can be a little too comfortable. You miss the warning signs. You have too much uh, confidence, too much optimism that things will work out. You, you, know, you trip yourself up, ultimately. So in sports, for instance, yes, I have seen that the really great athletes actually tend to exhibit disgust often. And disgust means, you know, bad taste, bad smell, the nose wrinkles, for instance, the upper lip flares. And it's almost as if those great athletes, they're just endlessly dissatisfied. They want to get to a next level. They want to perform ever better. And I've seen at least one study that looked at CEOs and tracked their expressions to stock performance. And it turned out to be a higher index on disgust for those better performing CEOs. So it, it does make some sense. So to be a better CEO, you have to be a little bit, you have to be dissatisfied to extend. Yeah, yeah. You, you need to keep driving. You need to have that engine of, of growth opportunity. Uh, because one of the sad truths is that some of the CEOs, that's the thing they've been waiting for, to get to the corner office. And then what you don't want them to be, if you're the employee whose livelihood depends on the company's success or the stockholder who's invested, you don't want them to be coasting. You actually want them to still be hungry. And I think that that disgust is a sign that they're hungry and choosy as to what they're going to do, what's their course of action, what uh, pieces of information they're going to act on. Yeah, good. So you talk about, I guess, uh, team building and relationship building in an organization. I noticed that you, you you speak to that a bit. How does that all work together? I mean, obviously you can't train everyone or maybe you can. How do you make team building and, and company uh, team experience better? It's a great question. I've been really fascinated since the great resignation slash great reshuffle took place and everyone's now hungry for not only finding talent, but keeping it on board. Well, you're going to keep them on board if the employee experience is a positive one. How do we spend most of our time? In meetings, <laughs> in collaboration, in email exchanges, all of it's interpersonal. And I think that the fault line here for companies that they really shockingly have not paid attention to, because they're all eager to have more retention of talent, is the managers. I'll never forget there was a study done by Daniel Goleman 
Richard Boyatis and a couple of other people, they concluded that only 12% of managers were good at their jobs, Mm. 12%. And the major reason was that they got promoted based on hard skills that they had demonstrated. But when they're a manager, they're not actually practicing those hard skills nearly as much as they're managing people, which involves the soft skills they never picked up. And so if you're going to keep people, if you're going to train them well, collaborate with them, it may not be that you're going to get around to everyone on the team. But if you have the skills as a manager, how do you construct those teams? Do you put the right personalities together? Do you monitor the the team a little bit to make sure that people are happy? Is there someone who's not pulling their weight? Often happens. Someplace where there's a disconnect based on two personalities that clash. Some of the fun work I did in sports was telling them which was your best team to put, for instance, on the basketball court. You know, who liked each other innately, who had emotional qualities that naturally complemented or offset someone else's weakness, who was a good team to be on the court when you were way ahead but didn't want to lose momentum, who could take crunch time, who wouldn't give up even if you were behind. Those things are all pretty translatable to business. And I'm not saying just because we have all these sports cliches that get transferred into business. It's just because it's personal dynamics and interaction. Uh, So much of it, once again, comes back to that. Yeah. So in in terms of team dynamic, is it just the onus of leadership to put these teams together and monitor them? Or are there active things you can do within the group to teach soft skills? I mean, how do you approach that? If a company says, hey, hey, Dana, we want to do better at this. How do we do this? What typical process do you go through to help them through this? That's another excellent question. First of all, I would start with this wonderful comment from Tom Peters, who said, no team should be larger than what could be fed with two large pizzas. <laughs> a lot of teams are too big. And so they don't have intimacy. They don't have a internal cohesion to them. So I think you want to start with size, make it smaller. I think about six people, eight people at the most is a really good size. That way, if one person drops out, takes another job, whatever, you still got enough people to cover the functions. Then I think you want diversity. I mean, it is shocking how rarely companies in senior management have the diversity they should have. Because there are studies that indicate that greater diversity in the senior ranks will mean as much as 19% greater profitability. 19%. I mean, that is really hard number ROI. And yet they're choosing their own comfort level by often being surrounded by people just like them. I think a really great team does have diversity by gender, by age, by skill set, by temperament, by seniority within the company. You want, I think, at least one person who's really new to that assignment or really new to the company, because they're going to just naturally be outside the box. And you want somebody outside the box, because a lot of times that curiosity that they will bring just refreshes the whole process. So I think that's cool. I I think you got to have a mentor. You got to have someone who looks out for the group that you're not in a silo, because let's be realistic. There are office politics. And anytime you have an initiative, you probably have someone else in the organization who wishes that initiative went nowhere because they're tied to the status quo. They had the previous idea. They have something that is working just fine as far as they're concerned because they're trying to you know, stay in their job. So you got to have someone who's going to protect the group and, and has the stature to do that. And then within the group, I'm really intrigued by the idea that 
you don't actually assign the leader. You allow the leader to emerge. One of my favorite ideas is you actually have people audition to be the leader. They have to create a brief speech or even a two-minute video they share why they should be the leader. And although they may not be facial coding experts, I believe they will detect the sincerity, the energy level, you know, just that unknown wow factor that could make them the better leader. Don't have someone just imposed on the group. It's too important and you're wasting too many people's time. Yeah, that's very cool to be able to, to come up with that. I think I heard a variation of that was mentioning paying attention to whose people's desk when we, when we were actually in offices at the time. Sure, sure. Uh, that people were going to most commonly that wasn't really related to the you know uh, sort of hierarchy or anything like that. Yeah, no, there there are all sorts of little clues. I mean, just look to the behavior. There, you know, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes said, you know, I have trained myself to notice what I see. But most of us look without seeing. You know, we take in things, but we don't really detect them. I used to do some freelance journalism. And although it was fun to have the conversation with people, you didn't want a bunch of sidebar conversations. Or if you were out in the public and doing observation, you didn't really want to get distracted by a conversation because you just didn't have the same acute attention to the revealing details that are going to make your story. You got to hone in. Yeah, give me an example when you're talking about uh, not a bunch of sidebar. You mean like just sort of a be to the side of it or do you working as a team so you can observe more? Like, what do you mean by that? I'll go autobiographical and then I'll try to answer it in a business context. So I wrote a book on, on how cities brand themselves through festivals. So the festival had to be in the same city every year. So one of them was I went to, to Mardi Gras. You know, a fun assignment, to say the least. But at one point, I'm at a really interesting dynamic because uh, down Bourbon Street were going people who were actually, there was a group of fundamentalists who came into New Orleans during Mardi Gras, and they were dragging a large cross down the street, down Bourbon Street. I mean, I'm talking like 14 feet long. So it took several people to carry it. At one point on the parade route, they passed a a gay bar Mm -hmm. and the conversation going on between the fundamentalists and the people in the gay bar was fascinating. And I knew it was going to be in my that chapter of my book. And because you had a clash of cultures and someone just at that moment saw that I was taking notes and came over and wanted to talk to me. And I tried to be polite and allow for the conversation for a bit. And then I realized I was missing the moment. Because they were literally taking that cross down the street past the gay bar. And this wasn't going to go on for two hours. This is going to be a brief moment. And so I think that you have to say you're giving a presentation at a company. And you can come to realize that there is a decision maker in the room who may be hiding, holding back, you know, not quite uh, being forthcoming as to what's going on for them. You've got to find the time. And I can think of this because it was actually a meeting with Toyota. And I could tell some, some other people were asking me questions and I was trying to answer them, but I, get, I figured out who was the decision maker. And I needed to focus on that person because I could see they were starting to disengage because they could see I was distracted by a sidebar conversation. And they took that opportunity to start checking their smartphone and I needed to reel them back in. So I had to cut off that conversation without being impolite, but I had to cut off that conversation and make sure I got the decision maker back into the conversation before the person had checked out. 
And so I, I just think there are there are moments where you got to realize what's the real course of action, what has to happen, and maybe some some polite conversations have to be sidelined or picked up later to make sure you don't lose the thread of what's going to be vital. Yeah, I mean, listening to that, it sounds like um, maybe from two two angles. One is if you're a leader, I think you'd have to work extra hard to get those sort of hey natural moments that are occurring maybe yeah or outside moments and then secondly the uh, to, to sort of add to that maybe there's you're saying there's an advantage of being able to blend in and while watching things transpire yeah 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 you know i, I guess i'm the original soccer mom you know i have to multitask uh, i think all of us to be effective you gotta keep some things going but you have to see where the real the real thrust of the conversation is I had a wonderful boss at one point who used to say, maybe this is a really dumb question. And it never was a dumb question. <laughs> it was the question that nobody else in the room dared to ask. And I found it was really fascinating to see how other people responded when he posed the question who were delighted because they were going to be his ally in a moment because they had, they had thought of the same question, but were afraid to ask it. But now it was on the table and the people who weren't going to go with the thrust of that question, they were the opposition. And I would try to do a quick scan of the room to see how the coalition was going to build within the next two to five minutes of the conversation based on this eureka moment of, the, of this leader daring to ask the question no one would ask. Wow, the, the coalition. Yeah, I, I guess just being able to almost take a snapshot when these questions are asked, it just <laughs> would be amazing. I guess maybe it's a... Uh, sort of, I guess, a bonus if you are recording things uh, to be able it would, to. It would, it would be yes, but we're, we, you know, human beings are social animals, yeah. and yeah, we we tend to like to be in the herd. It's just safer, you know, and so um, yes, you know, you have to see who the individual is you're dealing with, but then you have to see their impact on others around them. Presuming it's not a one to one meeting, and that will give you the flavor of what's likely to happen. And to what extent you can roll with it or have to try to intervene and change the current of the conversation a bit. Yeah. I mean, sometimes as leaders, you have to make um, um, popular decisions that are yeah, obviously yeah. necessary. I mean, does it pay to turn those things off, turn that sort of sensitivity off to when you make those decisions? Or do you, should you we always try to keep that on? Because I'm just wondering, you know, would it make decisions harder for certain people? Oh, I think it will, because you, you can see you're going against the grain of what people want. I mean, I think there's no question. But all the same, I, I think as a leader, it, it would be bad advice to just take down your radar screen. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, even if you know where you're going to go and you know it's not unpopular, you need to know the depth of the resistance. Mm. You need to know if the clarifications you're offering, you know, are, are working. Mm. you know, are, are softening that resistance or, or failing to do so. You also want to look for confusion. Uh, one of the really good ways to know you have people confused is their eyebrows knit together and you get a vertical crease between the eyebrows. You know, no one likes to be confused, but a person who's confused is someone you can win over potentially. They just <laughs> don't quite get it yet. The person whose you know, lips are firmly pressed together, that's someone who's basically put up a speed bump. And, uh, you know, that's not going to be so easily done, but it's not as bad as the smirk because that's toxicity. Uh, you know, so you just, you just, you got to read the tea leaves. 
Yeah. You're, you're constantly evaluating benching. Cause I think one of the things, you know, I think of is when people talk about great cultures, you know, what, what is the standard, right? Cause it's not cut and dry, right? I mean, when you look at every single company, there's parts of it that aren't functioning well and other parts. So what, what is the threshold in which it is deemed, you know, functionally good and, you know, and toxic. So, I mean, do you have any idea? How do you think about that? Because I, I, I struggle to draw a line on are we doing well or are we not doing well? Well, I mean, I, you know, this is something that I wish HR departments would probably be a bit more proactive on. I think it's really easy to monitor the retention rates. Mm. You know, are there departments where people are churning through and, and departing? I, I think people often have a sense of that, but they almost don't want to look hard at it because it means you're going to now have to go deal with, you know, a vice president or a general manager or someone who's really created, you know, their, put their stamp on that department. Uh, there's a saying that the emotional climate in a company could determine as much as 50% of its performance and productivity, and that the CEO could influence as much as 30% of that culture in turn. So a lot of these things do start from the top and permeate down. And so, you know, same thing would be true at a department level. I used to do some poet in the schools things many, many years ago in grad school. And I could come into a classroom. I was the visiting person, but I was the other adult in the room. And so I was by association, guilty or not guilty, based on whether or not the teacher had rapport with the students. And I swear I could come in that classroom, you know, within five minutes, whether the teacher, you know, was in good standing with the students and they were really excited about that classroom and that teacher. And if so my task was pretty easy. If on the other hand, it was like this stillborn lack of energy in the classroom and they didn't really like the teacher. And I was the other adult who had just arrived and the teacher was introducing. I had a hard day in front of me uh, because I was going to have to deal with that. And it was just fascinating. Every change, you know, they're all classrooms, but boy, are they different, just like departments are different. So I think HR should look at those retention rates and they should figure out, they should have a little bit of guts because it really does impact the company. And uh, they got to find some ways to intervene in some fashion or throw a group thing. And then they know who they're really trying to talk to but they pretend as if it's for everybody, but yeah, these are the three, these are the three bad apples that are hoping to uh, influence a bit. Yeah. I mean, you, you talked about, you know, putting out there's general advice directed at a certain situation or a certain individual. I mean, how, how you talk about emotional intelligence, how important some of it is softening it and how important is uh, candor sometimes and where where's the line um how do you oscillate between those two or how do you think about it yeah well i, I i've managed people i've taught in the classroom i've been on lots of sports teams most people do not respond well to anything that is challenging to their identity that is potentially embarrassing humiliating so the first advice I would say is if it's going to be a really tough conversation, absolutely make it one-on-one -on -one without any bystanders, unless you have to have a witness or someone who is injured and is really you know organic to that conversation, getting to the outcome it needs. Otherwise, I would go to one-on-one. To -on -one. And then you got to read the situation. I think you, you know, I've done a lot of things in the media, you know, and uh, 
all TV appearances are pretty crazy because you got two minutes and sometimes the whole thing feels like you're on roller skates because it's just not what you expected. I would try to come into those interviews with one to three points that I wanted to make and try to get across no matter what happened, hell or high water. But I had to be prepared to let the rest of it go because you just got to respond in the moment. So I think you have to keep track of what's the thing you got to deliver on and then just read how they're responding. Sometimes uh, you can open with a question, uh, a concern. How do they respond? And then, you know, you're, you're kind of in a kayak going down the stream. And it may be white water. It may be rather placid. You will find out as you get into that conversation. But you just got to paddle and adjust uh, and, and do what you can based on the current of the river. And um, it requires flexibility. It requires preparation. It requires sensitivity. None of it's easy. But um, that's why you should be, you know, hopefully one of those 12% of managers who are, well, sorry, one of those uh, managers who are actually effective versus the majority who are not. Perfect. Now, um, I mean, you're an expert, you can go on forever and because you're very knowledgeable. Is there anything that I did not cover that you wanted to share? Wow. One could go on this topic forever. Indeed. I I think I really want to go back to the importance of engagement. Because if there is no sense of energy going on, you're really in trouble. Motivation and emotion in Latin have the same root word, movere, to move, to make something happen. Uh, a lot of workers are what I call until workers, until lunchtime, until five o'clock, until the next job, until I retire, et cetera. Uh, it just, it's reality. They're not necessarily jazzed by being at the company. They're happy for the paycheck but they're not necessarily that happy or that engaged on the job. You got to find a way to connect with them. You got to figure out who you actually want to hire, when to cut your losses and, and move on. Uh, and I'm not trying to say that to be mean. They may be in a, in a different job where, you know, they blew, blossom. It's just the right place for them. And this is not, but you need to read the engagement level. And from a facial coding point of view, that means is there activity on the face? Or is it just like, you know, a dead pond with a lot of algae? Um, you, know, you want some waves on the water. You, you want some, some motion going on, uh, movement, activity, making things happen. And so um, you can get to all the specific emotions, but uh, there's, there's no recourse to just seeing if the person's emotionally alive, uh, you know, for you. And, and that's really your starting point. Great. Well, thank thank you so much for uh, sharing your knowledge today. Oh, it was, it was great. You had excellent questions, by the way. You really did. You had done your homework. You came prepared. And I was impressed by what you asked. Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.